Uh, We'll be in the book of Genesis in chapter 2. Chapter 2, the book of Genesis. According to the most recent uh, U.S. Census and some CDC uh, data, divorce is at its lowest rate in 50 years. You're going, what? Yeah, but what's really sad about that, on the flip side of it, marriage is at 150-year low in the United States of America. Okay? According to a Pew study, barely half of U.S. adults are married. And nearly 4 in 10 now believe that the institution of marriage is something that is obsolete and old-fashioned. But as we know, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what society, how society views marriage. What really matters is what God says about the institution. God planned marriage, and it's very important to him. And because he is to be glorified, marriage has to be done his way. Now, just a side note, a quick note here. Um, I had planned these sermons for this week and next week, dealing with God's plan for the family as a two-part teaching on, like I said, God's design for the family that was also supposed to be sort of a, a, a primer Uh, for a four-week class that would be taught in second service. These sermons and the class were planned for um, earlier this spring. But as you know, um, my wife went to be with the Lord a couple months ago, and this was sort of put on hold. And quite honestly, when I talked with John, everything had been planned and sort of put into works, but I didn't know if and when I would be ready uh, to preach and teach on the family and marriage. But after some prayer and some contemplation... It's pretty obvious. I was reminded of the sufficiency and the transforming power of God's word and that everything I personally do should be about his glory and not my emotions. And setting that aside, I must tell you, it was an absolute blessing because this past month, setting up the six weeks of this, two of preaching and four weeks of the class, the Lord took me through a lot and it was awesome. I got to look at how blessed I truly am, even in my sadness, but also it was a time of grappling with the Lord of my own sin and my own shortcomings and understanding how precious he is and that when I take my eyes off the cross, who does it become about? And it's not good, okay? And it's not good. So truly, my desire is these next two weeks that we truly consider whether we are married or next week when we deal with the family, whether you have children within your household, you will see the application of this word in your own personal life. So as I said, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, and let me give you a little bit of context uh, to this. Whenever we study the Bible, it's very important that we have the context. So let me just go over a few things. Genesis chapter 1 gives us a complete narration of creation. Genesis t- chapter 2 retells that account in order to sort of fill in details concerning the creation of man and woman and the construction of marriage. Chapter 1 of Genesis pictures God, portrays God as powerful using the name Elohim. That's God of creation. But chapter 2 sort of switches, switches gears and pictures God as personal using the name Yahweh. That's the covenant-keeping God. See, the teaching of scripture on creation, human origins, and marriage are truly foundational to the rest of the Bible. Adam and Eve were real, individual human beings whom all humanity can be traced to. In Matthew 9, excuse me, Matthew 19, 4 and 5, Jesus speaks of Adam and Eve as real people and their union as the basis for the sanctity of marriage. Christ said this. 
in Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In addition, in Romans 5.12, the apostle Paul builds his case for the sinfulness of every single human being traced back to Adam as our representative head. Paul said this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So everything goes back to here in the garden with Adam and Eve. So in our passage today, we're going to see three things in our passage. There was a problem that needed to be solved that God gave the provision to the problem, and then we're also going to see the perfect illustration of the covenant of marriage. So let's start, let's begin with the problem. That's Adam's need for companionship. And we're in chapter two, and we're gonna see this in verses 18 through 20. 18 through 20. So let me read um, Genesis chapter two, verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God created Adam. God created Adam and breathed life into him. And he put him in the garden to do a job. We started just here in in verse 18, just three verses earlier in uh, Genesis chapter 2.15. God describes, the Bible describes what the job was. Genesis 2.15 says, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So in 2.15, he's dropped here, garden, work it, keep it. Well, our passage starts just, just three verses later. And three verses later, a statement is made by God immediately. And it's, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, doesn't that seem a little bit remarkably an abrupt statement by God? To the garden, to work, to keep it, to tend to it. Three verses later, it is not good that he should be alone. The Hebrew construct is important. Not good is placed at the beginning of the sentence to give an extreme emphasis. This is not good, God said. But I personally find that very interesting because Genesis chapter 1 is filled with it is good. God proclaiming, it is good, it is good. Genesis chapter one, six different times after every major creation event, God looked at what he created and he proclaimed, it is good. Chapter one, verse four, and God saw that light was good. Verse 10, and God called them land and sea and it was good. Verse 12, and God brought forth vegetation and it was good. Verse 18, and God set the expanses of the heavens and it was good. Verse 21, and God create, excuse me, and God created creatures of sea and sky. It was good. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth. It was good. Then wrapping up chapter one, verse 31. God, after surveying everything that he had made, he steps back and he declares, behold, it is very good. 
So chapter one finishes with God proclaiming what has been done is very good. Chapter two starts with an expanded version of chapter one. And all of a sudden in verse 18, we hear God proclaim it is not good. Okay. That expanded account, God suddenly says something is not good. Now, this is super important to note. It's important to note. This is God's conclusion that it's not good. He's the one making this proclamation. It wasn't Adam that came to the conclusion it's not good. It was God's conclusion, okay? God is the one who saw the need. Therefore, God is the one that is going to create the solution. So right from the beginning, right from the beginning, you can see God's sovereign plan for the unity and the covenant of marriage, okay? Remember, it is not, it is all about what God says. It is all about what God says, not what society our culture, or the courts may say. Because truly, if you've got the people that are in their 20s and teens and stuff in your life, whether children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, you know what the culture is speaking. And it is not the sanctified covenant that God speaks of. Okay, so here the word helper is used. God used the word helper in verse 18, and it refers to a complement, a completer, or really sort of a corresponding collaborator, okay? A corresponding collaborator. The helper is a perfect fit for him. She will be his counterpart. Like the missing piece of a jigsaw puzzle, he will now be complete. God proactively provided Adam the partner. God created Eve to do what Adam could not do for himself. It's not that man is better than woman or that woman is better than man, but each need each other. First Peter 3, 7 challenges husbands to be considerate and respectful because wives are, according to Peter, joint heirs, joint heirs of the gracious gift of life. Having heard what God said in, in verse 18, that it is not good, that he is alone, you would expect the very next verse to be something so like, so God created Eve. But it's not. It goes from, it is not good that he's alone, instead of going right to creating Eve, God immediately gives um, Adam a task, Okay. Instead of giving him the mate right away, God assigns a task. God sees the need for a helper, but he delays in order for Adam to recognize his own need. Okay, Verse 19 and 20, Adam was told to give names to all of the animals that God had created. Verse 19 told us that now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast. The word form means he designed, he planned, he created, he shaped, he fashioned. Then God brought each one of them to Adam, okay, for Adam to name them. See, there are a couple reasons for sort of this procession. Can you sort of see the picture, the, the parade of the animals? But one of the reasons for this was so that as Adam surveyed the animals, he would note something. For every animal, there were both male and female. For everyone had a partner. But where was Adam's? God was creating within Adam sort of a, a gnawing hunger for a life companion, a need that God would soon meet in the creation of Eve. We see at the end of verse 20, it states, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So you can picture this. Adam becomes somewhat despondent as he discovers for himself, as he's naming the animal partners, as he's naming them, he discovers for himself that there is no one helper fit found for him. Verse 20, Adam discovers what God already proclaimed in verse 18. Picture it. Here's Adam. He's living in paradise with everything his heart can want, including a sinless relationship with God. I cannot fathom that. I literally cannot fathom that because I stumble over my own sin all the time. And I know how that pollutes the fellowship between me and my Lord. So Adam is in the garden, everything he could possibly want and a sinless relationship with the Lord. But it says he felt alone. See, God placed that within him. So there was a need and God wanted Adam to see that need so that Almighty God in his divine providence could show Adam that he would meet his need. How many times have we witnessed the Lord meet our need? We don't realize we have the need and when it shows up, our faithful, sovereign Lord provides for that need. So here we go. God's going to give Adam the provision he needs. We find this in verse 21 through 23. So let's read verses 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The word made is literally a specific form of construction, a specific form of construction. God used Adam's rib in order to construct Eve. As a sculptor, God carefully shapes her into something that will match the man. Adam was formed, scripture says, Eve was made. I like how one commentator puts it. She, being Eve, was not taken from Adam's head that she would be that she would uh, that he would rule over her, not from his feet that she should be trampled by him, but she was taken from his side that she might be his equal from under his arm that she might be protected by him near his heart that she might cherish him that he might cherish her and love her. Now, that's just all figurative language, but it speaks to God's design here for these two. Okay, Eve was fashioned from Adam not to be identical, but to be complementary. They were similar, but not the same. She was made from his rib to show that she was part of him, that she was part of him so that she would know it and Adam would know it too. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians uh, 5.28. Paul said this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Adam understood from my body, the Lord created. One Old Testament commentator writes, The woman was recreated to help the man out of his aloneness so that together they would form a community of oneness. From alone to one, not from one and one, from alone to one. Remember, Adam never put in an order. It's not like some Amazon thing like, ooh, 
I am alone and I am not accompanied. 24 hour delivery. Here it comes. You know, that's not the thing is this was not Adam's construct. This was not Adam's plan. Adam realized an issue and God's divine providence and his sovereignty delivered. Adam didn't order it. God provided. He just slept, leaving it to God. The Hebrew wording helped us understand that when he awoke, he was uh, pretty darn excited about what God had done. The phrase when Adam says this at last in the Hebrew wording, it would mean something more like this, it, this is it or at last or really sort of almost like, all right. Like, can you just picture this excitement that he has? He isn't like, oh, gee, this E is literally like, all right, here it is. Adam now sees that he will not be alone. Isolation gives way now to relationship, partnership, and truly completion. It's clear God's original intention is for one man and one woman, okay? The phrase, this at last, when Adam said this at last is bone of my bones and and, and flesh of my flesh, is an expression of, of ecstatic delight because Adam now sees that he has something that perfectly corresponds to him because he gave the personal thing of my bone and of my flesh. He understands the deep personal connection that they have together. The word bone means we are of the same substance and the word flesh refers to of being one body. Adam's proclamation in his all right moment is truly proclaiming what God had planned. From one to be one, okay? These words are sort of like uh, a love song that, that Adam was singing. And this truly is the first time recorded in the Bible that Adam spoke. These words is what he spoke. From this, we see two things about Adam and Eve. They have the same substance as each other. And they have the same stature before God. Same substance, same stature. One might ask, why wasn't Eve made from dust like Adam? Well, one reason uh, was to show Adam, was to show Adam something here, that Eve was part of him. And being part of him, he is equal to him. Not a lower creation. Both are made in the image of God. Husbands and wives are the same yet obviously different. We can be united even though we are uniformly, we can be united even though uniformly we are the same. We have equal value yet different roles. This is for Adam to recognize this. So the first problem of of isolation is identified. He is alone and it is not good. Second, God brings the provision of a partner. He gives really truly completion for Adam. And the final verses in chapter two give us a portrait of their unity. Problem, solution, and unity. Okay? This illustration is found in verse 24 and 25. So let's read Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. These verses give us probably the the, the best picture of, of what marriage is supposed to see. And we see that God had planned the human heart for, for love, 
for this, this covenant here and for companionship. The word therefore is translated at the start of these verses for this reason. For this reason, and the word shall indicates that this is a mandate. A matrimonial mandate that will stand in all marriages, in all cultures, and in all generations. So see, here's the thing, again, about the word of God. The word of God is consistently applied to every single person that has ever lived, whether they believe or not, consistently applied. So what is being spoken here about for this reason and shall, it is a mandate. This is for everyone. We cannot look at scripture and say, yes, no, yes, no, yes. If that's what it says, we stand by what it says. Earlier, I read where Jesus quoted this verse 24 and 25 in Matthew 19. The Apostle Paul also references these verses in part of uh, Ephesians chapter 5. In this illustration of marriage in verses 24 and 25, there are several things that are brought up that we must consider. First one is that marriage requires leaving. It requires a leaving, a transfer here in in a relationship. The Hebrew word is quite strong and means cut off, separated, leaving behind. Okay, We're never to abandon our parents when we leave that relationship and go to the next one because that wouldn't be biblical. But we're to shift our allegiance. We're to shift our allegiance. So the priority and primary is given to our spouse. It is given to our spouse. And that speaks to each one of us as a person in the marriage. And it also speaks to each one of us that our children are married. Y'all hear me on that one? I've got that with my kids. Their spouse is to be the priority because there is a leaving. There is a leaving, okay? The marriage created a new family. The marriage creates a new family, which from then on must take the priority over the previous relationship. And that's the parent-child relationship. There's also the aspect of cleaving here. We know this. In order to cleave to your spouse, you must first leave the one relationship. You can't be cleaving and cleaving, okay? You have to remove yourself from one to be able to cleave to the other. And once you've cleaved to your spouse, you must not leave. This is not a back and forth thing. Y'all follow what I'm saying? It isn't, I'm cleaving right now to my spouse because it's all going pretty well, but when it doesn't go well, I'm going to go over and cleave to this old relationship to find my comfort and my peace, okay? This is a leave and cleave, cleaving to your spouse. It's the idea of joining two things so tightly that they cannot be separated without hurting both things. So tight together that they cannot be pulled apart without injuring both. This Covenantial language is similar to what was used in Deuteronomy 4.4 when God said, but you hold fast to the Lord when it was said, but you hold fast to the Lord your God and all the days of your life. Hold fast, hold fast, cleave, be clung to, okay? Onto the Lord in a way that if we pull apart, it would injure our relationship, The same word is used with holding fast here for that cleaving that with our spouse, if we pull away, it would injure us both, okay? There's also an element here in these two verses of of, of unification or unifying, okay? It's more than just being joined together. It says the two become one flesh. See, this is a lifetime process. Can you sort of see something being uh, woven or, or, or knitted together? Couples go from being me and you 
to we, okay? God's math when it comes to the marriage isn't one plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals one. The two make one. Marriage is not uh, a contract. It's an unconditional and exclusive covenant that you make with your spouse and with the Lord. Every marriage, every marriage, folks, is always moving in one direction or another. Okay, so picture a line. There's oneness, two being one, and there's isolation. Not oneness like me alone. That's the isolation part, separating myself. And every marriage is moving one way on that continuum constantly, okay? If you're married, you're either moving towards oneness, the two being one, or you're pulling away and making it isolation. It works like this. Are you moving towards oneness or isolation? Are you living truly as mates, the soulmate God calls for, or are you laboring more like roommates, okay? Leaving, cleaving, and unifying describe what marriages are to look like. That is what the call is. And we don't get to go, yes, yes, no, or it is yes, yes, yes. I will be obedient. I will honor you. It is not about me. It is about you, okay? But because of sin, this amazing unity that God had made can also have trouble. That's where verse 25 comes in. 25 The marriage, it's being brought up here that because of sin, the marriage can cause grieving. Genesis 2.25 tells us that prior to sin, Adam and Eve were totally exposed before each other. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Not ashamed of their nakedness? How? Well, they hadn't sinned. They hadn't sinned. All that changed in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered into their relationship. And once sin entered into their relationship, the purity of verse 25 is gone. Okay? Guilt comes in. Grief comes in. Separation and shame. Verse 25 is in direct contrast to the shame of sin that we hear in Adam's words. Listen to Adam's words in in, uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. When God confronts Adam in the garden. Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, just the prior chapter, prior to sin, they both stood naked amongst each other and God and there was no shame. Now, after disobedience, sin comes in. I'm hiding to you because of my shame and because of my nakedness. Okay? Just two verses after this statement that Adam makes in Genesis 3.10, Genesis 3.12, we see that because of sin, sin causes shame. And because of this shame, Adam then starts something else that's even more sinful. He has the shame and then quickly from the sin transpiring to our first acknowledgement of sin and the separation it creates, And the shame, it then immediately becomes the next thing and Adam steps into blame. Have you ever, uh, have you ever used the words, don't blame me, it's not my fault? Okay? Don't blame me, it's not my fault. Here's the thing. We blame each other because then we can become the victims. Victims don't have to accept personal responsibility for, for wrong behavior. They're casualties of what happened to them and therefore should not be filled with a sadness or a guilt. The behavior, this behavior of shame, 
and blame go back to Adam in his response. Chapter 3, verse 10, shame. It's saying, saying it to God. Two verses later, it becomes blame. Listen to what Adam said in Genesis 3.12 and see how quickly the relationship changes. Adam says, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. His immediate reaction was to deny personal responsibility in the relationship and the sin that took place. His attempt to shift the blame was even, was, was even more extreme than just trying to blame Eve. Notice what Adam said to God, the woman that you. You gave me her. Somewhere between the two of you caused the problem. Okay? Oh, y'all, we know our relationships with people, correct? And how quickly we can fall into that place. Okay? Sin is unbelievable. Adam even tried to blame God for what he personally did. Well, it didn't take Eve very long to sort of join the shame blame game, okay? Adam pulled that stunt in verse 12, the very next verse, verse 13. Eve does this and goes, yo, it was the serpent that that deceived me and then I ate, okay? Sin has this way of corrupting relationships and having us in our pride push things off of us and trying to transfer them over to someone else, okay? That's the thing. We cannot let our sin and its pride muddy the beauty of the institutional relationship that God gave us of marriage, okay? You see it right here from the beginning. Adam's sin, Adam's fault, but he wants to deny responsibility and transfer it to who he is supposed to be cleaved to, woven to, bonded to. And right there, you see that fracture. Why? Because Adam doesn't want to uh, accept his own place before the Lord. Okay, God's objective for marriage is a loving relationship of oneness. And what you saw in verse 25 was oneness. And then so quickly, because of sin, that gets fractured. Jesus said this in Mark uh, 19.6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The word joined that Jesus used is the word that would translate best as to mean something like yoked together. A yoke was used to maximize the capacity of uh, two animals. Have you ever heard the, 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 the term when people get married, they got hitched? Ever heard that term? Well, this is what it comes back to. Okay, getting hitched. Think of two animals yoked together, hitched uh, to a heavy wagon. Okay, horses need companions. Yoke animals need companions. They're herd. They feel safer when they're together with their own kind. Okay, through proper training, being, being willing to work together and being hitched together. Herd animals, draft animals, draft horses in particular, could pull three to four times their own weight with a partner than they could do alone. That doesn't seem to make sense, okay? If a draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds by itself, we would just assume if one and one made two, it'd be 8,000 plus 8,000, which would be? Y'all pass, okay? However, when the two are put together, they can move up to 24,000 pounds. See, if they're trained and willing, trained and willing to work together, they are capable of so much more. 
And truly, that is an amazing thing that oneness creates. A good relationship has a reward for its toil because when couples pull together, great things can happen. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. See your spouse as your companion who completes you, as the one that you are to to live in, in communion with. Okay, Make sure that you have done the leaving part. Okay, And that you are truly, in a God-honoring way, cleaving to your spouse. And that you're allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work of uniting you and knitting you together. Now, there's a few things that sort of accompany this. Okay, There's also some elements and purposes that God gives uh, the intention of marriage for. And I want to just speak those quickly. One, of course, would be procreation. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it. Malachi 2, uh, 15 says, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the God, one God seek but godly offspring? Okay. Listen to what a husband says about his wife in Song of Solomon uh, one fifteen. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes, uh, excuse me, your eyes are doves. Okay. What does the wife say in response? Um, she says, my beloved, you are mine. There's a deep aspect of love, admiration that comes in uh, uh, the relationship of marriage. And of course, procreation becomes then possibly part of that. There's also a partnership thing that's important in marriage. Genesis 2.18 says, I will make the helper fit for you. But Malachi 2.14 says, she is your companion and wife. And here we go. Your companion, companion, friend, cohort, confidant. Are you deep Friend, cohort, confidant with one another. There's also something that needs to be considered about God's purpose for marriage too, and it's purity. I like the question one commentator asked about marriage. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than making us happy? What if he provided it more for us to be holy, set apart from what the rest of the garbage of this world is, than happy? First Corinthians 7, 9, Paul says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We separate ourselves from the things of the world. And in our marriage, there becomes this covenant aspect that should promote purity. Marriage is also to be a picture of Christ's love. God intended the marriage relationship to reflect the love of Christ. The love of Christ that he had for the church. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Our marriages are also supposed to be the proclamation of God's glory. Since marriage is from God, it is for his glory. Did y'all hear that? Because it's from God, it's from his glory, not our own satisfaction. Marriage is designed by God to display his glory, okay, in in the institution of marriage. Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit within their union? What a blessing that is. And how about Isaiah 43, 6 and 7? Everyone who's called by the, by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. We are called by his name for his glory. In our marriages, then, it's for his glory. So we go through these things here of, of Genesis chapter chapter 2 and looking at this and the awesome thing that God had planned and designed. Not for our glory, but to complete us. Not for our satisfaction, but for his, okay? 
So I want to finish this up with talking about how we apply this to their lives. And there's two distinct things where I would say this, how we apply this, the glorifying of the Lord in our marriage plan. The first one is you have to live out your covenant vows. I don't know your particular situation, but if your marriage is having trouble, I know we know that God can repair anything for God's glory. Each person constantly needs to determine that no matter what your spouse, no matter what your spouse has done or hasn't done, what they do or don't do, that you will do what you must do to live out your part of that covenant relationship. Okay, staying married is not so much a thing of staying in love. It's a thing about keeping your covenant to God, being obedient to his call with your spouse. Numbers 30 verse two. Uh, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. This is using the word covenant that's also used for the word marriage. Now, this is important to to, to note. In ancient times, there was this covenant of marriage was taken very seriously. There was one ceremony called a cutting uh, covenant. This took place when a son of, 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 of one tribal group or village married one from another tribal group, uh, married a woman from another tribal group or, or, or uh, village. Okay, there was a promising to one another. The fathers would butcher an animal, cut the carcass in half, and then at sundown walk barefoot through the path of blood that they had made. The slaughtered animals symbolized what would happen to either party if they violated the terms of the covenant marriage. Now that's taking it pretty serious, isn't it? Okay? But we shouldn't need a symbolization like that. The word of God should be sufficient for us to understand what it's all about. There's nearly 30 biblical references to the word covenant. A covenant was exclusive, solemn, and bringing a mutual agreement between two parties. In Ezekiel 16, 8, God compares his commitment to his people to the covenant vow that man is to make to a woman. He said, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Man, I know I am his by his grace and my faith, and there is a covenant where I became his forever. That is to be reflected in the marriage covenant, okay? That you became mine. And the only way we can live out the covenant vow is by making God the priority. And this is for each and every person. Your marriage will struggle if you do not have Christ at the center. Plain and simple. Okay. Paul, uh, Paul Tripp says this. If God isn't the center of your longings, your longings will never be satisfied. That's a personal note and a marriage note. If God is not at the center of your longings, your longings will never be satisfied. Okay. We cannot look elsewhere. Adam and Eve did not start to have problems until their unity moved away from God. Remember Ecclesiastes 4.12, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Not a cord of one, not a cord of two, but a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Okay. We never must forget this though. Christ at the center. But here's the thing, folks. Your spouse cannot be your focus. Your spouse is not your savior. Only Jesus is your savior. Your spouse cannot be the primary point of affection and intention. I'm telling you, if your spouse is your primary point of affection and attention, you're missing it. It will not go well. The primary point of affection and attention always has to be Christ. That is the third in the strand that make the cord hold together 
for his glory, by his power. Picture a, picture a, 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 a triangle, okay? Pick, y'all, triangle, okay? You, your spouse, Jesus. The closer you each move towards Jesus, you're getting closer to one another, correct? Can y'all see it? Mm-hmm. The closer you move to Christ, the closer you're going to be to one another, okay? But know this, you cannot have God as your priority in your marriage if he is not the priority in your own life. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. People will come in and say, hey, we need marital help. It's like, okay, it starts with your focus on Christ. No, 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 fix them. No, it always starts with you and your focus on Christ, okay? And this is where it is the priority. It has to be the priority in your life. Knowing God and having him as the priority in your life means several things. And this is for every one of us in Christ. Okay. It means knowing his fellowship through the Holy Spirit. Okay. First Corinthians 3.16 tells us that Christ has sent his spirit to be with his people and to dwell within our hearts. This is an incredible fellowship that never ceases. Even when we sin, even when we sin, the Holy Spirit does not leave us. Though there may be times that we grieve the Spirit and that we feel alone, the believer, in fact, is never alone and always has access to the throne. The book of John tells us three particular things about the the Holy Spirit, that he brings comfort, that he brings peace, and he brings conviction. Okay, cool. What does that mean for marriage? It means that we have an eternal advocate that knows our fear and our pain and what is happening. We can take the things, the troubles, the problems, the concerns that we have in this relationship to the throne of grace and we can give them to God even when we don't have the words. He knows what's going on. It means we are free to, to drive, we are free from needing to drive to a place of self-comfort Because the divine comforter is within our reach. The only comforter is found in Christ. It also means that our spouse may be, and you hear this, it also means through the Spirit, our spouse may be the means of God's conviction in our life. What? How many times the Lord used my wife to set me straight for his glory? Too many to count. Okay? Okay, this is awesome because it all, it means that we are free to hear those places where we might have hurt our spouse and not need to defend ourselves in pride, but to be open to the truth that we need to reflect on, to learn from it, to ask forgiveness, and then to endeavor not to repeat this mistake. Okay. And with the Lord, with the priority, we also have to not only know his spirit, we must understand his sovereignty. And this is crucial. Knowing God means knowing the sovereignty of the Father. Nothing happens that is not known by the Father. Psalm 137 tells us there is no place in all the universe that we can hide from his watchful eye. And that's not a cursed thing. That's a blessed thing. No matter what I stumble into and where I fall to, I'm not outside of his eye. Okay? There's no molecule in the universe that does not listen to God's command. And this means that we're free to rest in the Father's control over all of our lives as well. Y'all, there's a lot of stuff in our lives where you're going, what's going on, Lord? I don't like this. This is tough. This is hard. Never, never doubt his sovereignty and his divine province. Okay? He's sovereign over all things. This means that whether... Uh, we're exercising loving authority or gladly submitting it to within our marriages. We're always submitting to a higher authority. Okay. If there's struggle within the marriage and there's pride put in there and who's on top, always remember who's the authority. It's not you and it's not your spouse. 
With your eyes on Christ, you will never lose sight of who the authority is. The goal of authority should not be to hold it over one another, but to display something of a gracious character of the supreme and sovereign God himself. We are stewards of any authority we have within our marital relationship or our household. We're given this authority so that God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit might be brought to honor and glory. That's any authority that we have. And finally, for God to be the priority, folks, here it is at the end. We have to imitate the Son. We have to imitate Christ. How should I proceed with this? Like Christ would. Knowing God means knowing the service of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 and 8. He was one with God, same in substance, equal in power and glory, yet he was willingly took human form, subject himself to weakness and God's law. Christ perfectly obeyed. And though he deserved to be treated like a king, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was betrayed, abandoned, tortured, murdered, uh, and endured wrath. He completed all of this so that he might clothe us, that he might clothe us, his people, in his own righteousness. So here's the thing. We as Christians may now become not just, we aren't just some peasants of the kingdom, okay? But we are members of the royal family. We are co-heirs because of Christ. Rather than using his authority, Christ, rather using his authority to force to, uh, others to serve him, he freely sacrificed himself. Freely sacrificed himself. Therefore, without question, imitating Christ we are to freely sacrifice ourselves in our relationships. This means we're free for our marriages to be a place of service, not just our own personal satisfaction. So when times come of sacrifice to lay down our lives for our spouse, to, to listen before we speak, to respond in love rather than in anger, to own our part in sin rather than to point it to our spouse, we are able to do that knowing that what we are doing by doing that and humbling ourselves is reflecting something of Christ's goodness and his character. Prioritizing God in our marriages means knowing him in our hearts and reflecting him in our actions. And we're going to deal a lot with knowing him in our hearts and how that reflects in our actions next week. See, I always, when I look at scripture like this, I always sit, sit back sometimes and I stare at the design of God, the Trinity, Okay. At times it can seem like a, some obscure uh, theological construct. But in reality, it's an essential part of God-centered marriages. That each of us have proper fellowship with the Spirit. That each of us constantly recognizes the sovereignty of God in what is transpiring. And that we always remember the service of Christ and imitating Him and using Him as our example. Okay, this is only what helps to secure the marital relation. It is only secure at Calvary. And there is no safer and more liberating place in the universe. But standing before Christ in awe of who he is and making all things for his glory and not our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you, Lord, and we love you. And Lord, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your divine providence, Lord, and um, what we have in Christ. And Lord, I, I truly pray whether there is marriage here or not married yet or, or once we're married, Lord, that we would understand this application. 
before you in our own personal lives, Lord, but particularly in marriages. Because, Lord, we see by Scripture how important it is to you, how quickly it comes up in your word. For your glory, we have been given such a precious institution, Lord. May we not take it lightly. May we always search ourselves first, Lord. May we seek your kingdom in all that we do. And may your glory flow into our relationships, our actions, and our conduct. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.